The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. I'd like to thank you for coming out today. We are very sorry that um, the Venerable who is living here is unwell today, so um, the BSV couldn't offer um, a dana here. It's hard to imagine, and yet we have to hold our loving kindness and our compassion with thoughts in a very large way. So I want to first um, start with just a little bit of a story, because I hadn't really reflected on this as a whole story, as a whole uh, part of myself, till quite recently. But when I went back, uh, I realized this connection with Kuan Yin goes on possibly since I was a baby. I, my first recollections of, um, of something that would represent an aspect of her was when I was about two, I went to the ocean for the first time. We lived inland in a country town, Wheat Belt town in WA, and our family went to the ocean. And um, I only know that because somebody I went to um, college with, we were childhood friends, and she showed a picture of me with a bonnet at the ocean. <laughs> so I can, I can assume that from that time I had a dream of crawling away from my parents and crawling into the ocean. And when I crawled into the ocean, which normally you would drown, uh, I, I could breathe. And I was surprised I could breathe. And then I recognized these various forms of sea life, fish and other forms, that would come to me. And they would take me to this sort of castle in the sea, you might say, not anything that we would see as a castle and to a room, and the room was always just this brilliant light. So it was like going into a deep meditative space, a deep samadhi where the mind becomes luminous and there's no forms, no shape, but this big booming voice would ask why I was doing what I was doing there and why I wasn't with my family. And I would always say, in some way, and, it, and the dream, this dream grew for many years. It was another heart, part of myself. And I'd always say, ah, oh, you know, I needed to come and see you, or I wanted to come and see you, or can you teach me, share something with me? And he would say a few words, and then I would come back. And my family didn't seem to miss me. <laughs> but... I had this this uh, sort of ongoing dream for about from the age of two till about the age of eight, eight or nine. That's quite you know getting on there. It developed, of course, the the sea figures. You know, you could put them in movies now, and the, the castle, the beauty, and the ornament, and the story. You know, the, the stories that I would get from this father-like figure. Um, grew. and But when I woke one night, and that was the end of that dream, 
And I always knew it was there. I reflected on it over the years. But it didn't make any sense until I started to meditate. And then I realized this was a form of the mind as a child being able to go into a deep place. And then later I discovered that one aspect of Kuan Yin was riding the ocean king or the ocean dragon and would go back to such a place. It was a, quite a famous story about which I won't touch on today. And I reflected on that. But the next time that anything that I could say was the first introduction to Kuan Yin, I was now about 1920. I had heard about Buddhism. I'd started to study a bit of meditation. But I'd never seen an image or even actually heard the word Kuan Yin. And I went to the home of somebody I'd met who was a yoga teacher. And he he had his class in this very white room and with doors going off, which were bedroom doors. And on one of the doors was this figure of a Kuan Yin standing. And I asked about it. And that was the first time I heard the word. And the first time I saw this beautiful form of a deity. Now, Kuan Yin, um, in his life, was his deity. And, uh, and he told me the story that he was in India, dying on the streets of Calcutta. He'd been studying yoga in India, got an illness and dying on the streets of Calcutta. And a woman came up to him, a Western woman came up to him, and he saw her as Kuan Yin. He saw her as the deity of Kuan Yin. She was so kind, so compassionate. And she got him a visa. He'd lost everything. All his money had gone. The visa had gone. He was in a little, uh, on a little bit of cloth on the streets, dying in Calcutta. And she got him home. And he said her name was Suil. Now that name stuck in my mind. And Suil turned out to be a person who was the woman I contacted to become a nun. I didn't know it was the same Suil until I got to Korea. And she, sure enough, she was the person who had helped this man and she told me the whole story from her perspective. And we've remained wonderful friends and um, she is very much this deity of compassion, this heart of compassion. Her whole life and practice is in the aid of helping others. So then I, through the, the help of Suil, actually, and Kantipalo, my teacher, um, I actually had the opportunity to go and study in Korea for the next 20 years and become a nun. So many of you know that story. But Suil helped me in that first year with what it is to dress and, and be a nun. And um, in this 20 years um, of living in Korea, even though Kuan Yin was part of every temple, um, and some temples were predominantly these beautiful Kuan Yin temples where people went in a devotional way to pray and do prostrations and 
ask for whatever they needed. Still, for me, my practice and my reason for going to Korea was to study Buddhism from the, the Mahayana Zen tradition and to learn Zen meditation. So it wasn't forefront in my mind. But during this 20 years, I did go and sit. Uh, sometimes when I was sick, I did go and sit in beautiful temples, and we had a very lovely meditation, a very lovely Kuan Yin Hall that I would go and sit in. And I got to know the chanting monk of that hall, and we became very good friends. And then I started to, through my nun sisters, and several of them were devotees of Kuan Yin, I started to get to know a little bit more about her from perspective of Korean Buddhism. Now, when I'm saying her, actually in Korea, the figure can be both very androgynous, quite male-like, and very ethereal, quite godlike, um, in the sense of flowing gowns. So I will show a few pictures, but I'll need to have my uh, this on. And I can't see anything on here. Oh, there they are. Here we go. Um, before I start, I will just touch on a little bit of my Kuan Yin. So that's some Vietnamese um, offered a Kuan Yin, a marble Kuan Yin, which was very beautiful. And we had it, um, it was quite a difficult um, arrangement to get it to the property and also to get it in place. But a local man with his big machine, he he um, was able to put it in place. And then recently, in January, we had this wonderful inauguration of the Kuan Yin. Um, I haven't got a lot of pictures of her, but, you know, just I wanted to share something here which will touch on what I'm going to express in a moment. Um, here was the inauguration. We had Venerable Fuktan and Venerable Bunsum and some other people. And um, I shared an introduction Venerable Bunsum did some chanting. And then Venerable Fuktan did a ceremony which is called the eye-opening ceremony. And the eye-opening ceremony I had seen uh, at a Kuan Yin in Korea. Uh, it was one of the first um, eye-opening, one of the first inaugurations I saw of a Buddha in Korea was a Kuan Yin. And I saw this eye-opening ceremony and asked if he knew how to do it. And he offered it. And it's a very interesting thing because here is a statue, unlike a painting where they paint the eyes in, it's a statue out in nature. So I wondered how he was going to do it. And very powerful ceremony. You know, we had about 70 people um, scattered around in the gardens and he painted on this little mirror a circle. And then in the circle with red ink, he painted the character many times Om Mani Padme Hum from the, uh, from the mantra, the Om Mani Padme Hum symbol, many times, and he chanted this, and then he did some other chants, and he turned the, he turned the mirror onto the Kuan Yin, just where her eyes were. As you can see, this, that circle just touches where her eyes are. And when he did that, and he's still chanting, you felt 
the deity come. The deity or the energy or the, the consciousness, this very luminous golden light sort of spread over the place. And I wasn't the only one who experienced it. Others came and spoke about it. So, you know, I thought, well, here we have an innate-looking object, a, a marble object. And we hadn't actually, unlike when you do Buddhas in, in shrines, you put in many uh, relics, and gems, and mantras, and, and texts, Buddha Dharma text. This is just something sitting there. And it, it brought it to life. It actually did. You felt it, and others have felt it. And so I just wanted to share that because that was one of the first experiences I had in Korea where um, I went to an inauguration and an eye-opening ceremony of a Kuan Yin, but it was a painting. We call Kuan Yin in Korea, we call her Kuan Simbosa, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And the Bodhisattva of Compassion has many forms. Often it is a form of uh, the standing Kuan Yin. And I will show a few. Oh, this, this is actually ones from my own home. This is a seated one. And where she has her hand resting on her knee with one leg up, it's a subjugating. It's allowing nature with the little, with the little uh, vase and and the uh, plant in the vase, it's bamboo usually, it's, a, it's both subjugating and allowing things to be as they are in nature. It is that position where you are in, nat in a natural, she's sitting on the root of a tree in nature and allowing the practice to, to bloom and grow in, within nature. And I mean, that's very much a part of the Buddha's teaching too, you know, the Buddha was someone who practiced in nature. So these, all of these Kuan Yin started to come to me more towards the latter part, um, although that one came before I left and there was another one, my teacher's father, who was a very famous monk, he gave me a small old gold Kuan Yin and... Um, and then when I, I came and built a hall, I received two more big paintings of Kuan Yin's. Um, so these things appear, and then the Vietnamese one came. So it is, I hadn't really thought of this connection so much until the Vietnamese one came. But because I had been sitting in the house before we had the hall and I was sitting there with, with this beautiful one that my nun teacher's disciple gave me when I left Korea, it was my image of a Buddha, you know, because my large Buddha images needed a big hall and we still have to inaugurate those. And that will happen possibly early next year. So this is where I've been doing my prayers and the calligraphy behind it says Namo Amitabha. And Kuan Yin is said to have been born out of the tears of Namo Amitabha, but uh, there are many stories of you know how she is, she is, her presence has come into existence, and I'll touch on some of those. So we'll go back. You know this 
is uh, uh, a Gandavara Kuanyin. Avakloshteshvara is another name. So it's one of the very early, the earliest Buddhist sculptures in India were of these people. And when you have a look at it, it's very masculine. It's very much in the stance of, you know, um, of protection. And uh, I think when the Buddha first, you know, we can't see the other hand in this picture, but it's possibly down. It's a standing picture. One is his, his touching the earth, connecting the earth, and the other is, you know, his connecting with all, presence with all. But it is also quite a powerful, um, just in its stance in this one, quite a powerful, you know, Nothing can pass this truth. Nothing can is higher than the Dhamma. So he holds this this pose. There are many poses, many, uh, um, and they don't. I don't have them all. What they're written, I had them written underneath them, but I don't have them there. And this one too is very early, seventh century. So the other one was like fourth, fifth century. This one, seventh century, in China, and uh, this one is. Then it, we get on to the twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth centuries, and this is one um, from Korea, which is called like the ones that I have in my hall, both old paintings, but they're called the Water and the Moon, Bodhisattvas, Kwan Simbosal. And you can't see, but at the base there's a little figure, a little figure of Manjushri who was on his journey as a child to find out how different um, people became enlightened, how different uh, teachers and deities. So he's, he goes to Avakloshteshvarahi or Kwan Simbosal and asks how she became enlightened. And he teaches her the teaching, which I will talk about to hear the cries of the world, to hear how suffering comes and to be able to be present with it, how to, to uh, engage with great suffering, great pain, yet not be, a, you know, other, not to be hurt or not to be burdened, but to be able to hold it and to give compassion and empathy and altruism the acts of altruism, uh, to enable some sort of healing. And another one, again, a, a moon and water, but the, the most popular form in China became these white kuanyin, which is more about a purification form. And this one, again, a very relaxed. I don't know what the mudra is. It's just very relaxed. And it is um, 14th century. You know, a porcelain from 14th century. So we have, uh, these are just a few. You know, this is a very common stance, even though this is Chinese, very common stance in Japan and similar to the, the position 
of the one I have, which is, um, and the same position of the one I have in the big painting in my hall, this one of, uh, of, um, of subjugating, of holding a position, holding presence, holding attention, holding awareness, but in a very quiet and gentle way. And this one is from Japan. This has um, the 11, 11 faces of Kuan Yin. It's 12 with the main, but on the head is 11 faces, which these are the different aspects, the different personalities. Some of them are quite um, wrathful. Some of them are, are, are very gentle, very pleasant. Others are very firm, very meditative. So they're taking on the different states of, of mind uh, in how we deal with the ignorance and the kalesa, you say, with the defilements. And this is in Sri Lanka. This I don't know if you've seen it, but it, it is in Sri Lanka. Sorry, I should have written the, the names and places. And, and this is the 1,000 arm, 1,000... I have a Kloshteshvara. Um, very common in Tibet, in China and Korea, and somewhat in Japan. But here you have the thousand eyes in each hand, which is the wisdom eyes. The compassion never goes alone. It is always connected with wisdom. Without the wisdom, the compassion can... Uh, not hit its mark, so to speak. It may not have its appropriate effect. So each illness, this reflects to the, the many illnesses, the many delusions, the many um, uh, well, there's many sort of defilements, we might say, but many con confusion we have as a, as a human. And so the whole point is to have the hand that can see what it is, and also the hand that can have a tool that will help to heal that, that problem. And this is a very modern. So this here, she, you know, she has a few hands, and she has, again, the, the tools of practice, the Dhamma, uh, the Dharma wheel and and the beads, you know, and here is a lotus. This is a sort of more a common image, again in that seated, but instead of a subjugating, here is one of complete, you know, relaxation. So I just wanted to share those with you. Um, leave one or leave it up. So the, the name of Avakloshteshvara um, before Kuan Yin started in about the 5th century and it was um, also mentioned in the Lotus Sutra which was found in the 2nd century. The earliest text we have, written text, is the Lotus Sutra. And the 33rd chapter has the the story about the 33 Kuan Yin's, whatever Kloshteshvara, 33 facets of this compassion. So how compassion can enable, how it can be used as a healing tool, 
as uh, a development of consciousness and loving-kindness. So it is also something that is developed through the meditation that the um, perspex- perspective of Avakloshiteshvara that grew in Japan and China and all the Southeast Asian countries and in Nepal and Tibet, it was something that was uh, cultivated because of the incredible amount of suffering and wars and cultures being destroyed and, you know, uh, Buddhism dying out in a place and coming back. So these, these at times, the aspect of compassion was something that was very much in focus. The Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, is, is uh, the Buddha known as great, of great knowledge and great wisdom and great, um, uh, you, you know, he's his organized a lot of the teachings he had learned from his, his previous teachers and compiled them in a way that was very systematic, possibly compared to other Buddhas that may just come with one or another aspect. But he was a very systematic teacher, very thorough teacher. But the aspect of Kuan Yin is something that is not something we can necessarily receive from outside. It is something that we, is inherent within us. It is something that if we go in through our practice or we cultivate through various aspects of, of um, the Kuan Yin practices or, or even the Buddhist practices, then it is something that we touch upon and it, it grows, it comes out. But the thing is we... We are not educated in a way to necessarily understand this. What I discovered, um, oh, and I did do, I'll just touch on this too, I did do a number of pilgrimages. You know, even these things I didn't think about, but in Japan there's the 33 um, Kuan Yin temples that you do a pilgrimage. And in Korea I, I did a pilgrimage to a, a number of, um, of these wonderful temples. And uh, it was, wasn't until actually the 13th century that the form of um, Avakloshiteshvara became female, uh, well, in some aspects. It was still predominantly male out of the 33. Only seven of the, the um, images were female. But then they started to grow in, in a female form in China. And there is the... Um, there's a, some wonderful stories about, you know, the, there's a fish basket, Kuan Yin, where she is so beautiful that many men want to marry her. And when she gives them all sorts of tests which help them to start their practice in Buddhism, you know, and it comes down to one. And then just as he's prepared the wedding, she dies. And then he learns that she is the... Uh, from a, a monk, she's the avatar of Kuan Yin, that she cannot, she's not an ordinary human, she cannot marry. But in her coming to that place, she has disseminated uh, Buddhism in that place. You know, she's created the teachers who could then go and teach. And he goes and this uh, fiancé goes off and he becomes a monk and he becomes a very great teacher. 
But the most famous story is the story of Moshan. And Moshan, uh, the Moshan name of Moshan has many, um, uh, many famous, there's a famous temple called Moshan. There was a very famous Zen nun by the name of Moshan. And then also Moshan in this story is a princess. Her father is a rather, you know, um, is a king, but he is a very, you know, de determined, defiant, you know, and he wants his daughter to marry. She wants to be a nun. She wants to study the pure path. And the story goes that um, out of anger, the king sort of tries to have her killed. He, he does many things to deter her, and he puts her in a temple, and and um, they, she has to work day and night, and all of these different things he does to kill her just helps her cultivate her compassion more and her respect for for the path more. Eventually, um, he falls ill, and. His, um, she's sort of been banished. She was supposed to be killed, but she was banished somewhere, and he falls ill. And then after a while, um, he meets a physician, so he says, the only one who can really help you alleviate this malady is this great sage who lives off up in the, um, the flower mountain, or the, sometimes it's called the fragrant mountain, one of the five mountains. And he goes off, and when he finds the sage, he sees it's a daughter. And so he asks forgiveness, and so the story goes. And the king, um, he becomes very benevolent, you know, very generous, and you know, she heals, he, she's healed, and, and his um, ex total acceptance of the Dharma and acceptance of her. So... In a way, the story here is talking about how, and also this this place is like a pure land, you know, how the flower mountain got its name and how it becomes this pure land of practice. So all through this mountain where a very famous temple called Moshan is, I've been to that temple, um, is the story, of course, between a a child who wants their own uh, freedom, their own independence, their own choices, a father who, or a, uh, um, another figure who's very dominant, very controlling, and how one, through those difficulties, if we look at those two dynamics, the, the one who is, is younger against the older, the one who is um, uh, less powerful against the strength, all of these sort of forces play in our lives, in our own lives, in our own minds, and in the world at large. If we look at what's going on in, in parts of the world, this play of, of power against, you know, a, a weaker form is, uh, appearingly weaker form, is always there. So this story happens is that her cultivation was so great that she became known as the thousand hand, thousand eyes, Avakloshteshvara. So she had developed so many skillful means to help people and so many um, 
so much wisdom that could see into the problems, just as with Shakyamuni Buddha too. There was a great um, Indian bodhisattva called Shantideva, which I've spoken about him before. And uh, he says, if the inner enemy delusion, just the inner confusion, the inner mind, the inner illusions can subside in some way, can be alleviated, can be subjugated. It is like having destroyed all the external enemies. So if the heart can be pacified, the mind can be stilled, the consciousness can grow and the problems out there are no longer a problem out there. I mean, this is something that I, I did start to recognize when in my practice in Korea because at times I did get quite sick, one time very sick, and it was through more devotional practices, not through meditation at that time, because when you get very sick it's quite hard to meditate. So it's more the devotional practices, the practices of giving yourself fully in the moment. You know, you're, you're sick, you're, you're right here, you're in the moment. And um, I went off and did these devotional practices. And slowly I could be in my embody the practice and be in my body and do the bowing, do the chanting for many hours. And it was these practices that healed me and allowed me the strength to stay so long in a culture which was very different to anything I had known in my life as a young woman. But it is some of the thing, aspects of the Kuan Yin, um, along with growing, you know, the resilience and, and the... the taming the mind and developing more powers. It is how do we actually apply it? And recently there was a, a, a situation where a student came to me, um, or someone I know came to me, and she's, she's been practicing meditation for many years, and she's very good at offering dana. But she had a relationship problem, and I knew both parties. I knew her, and I knew her partner. And so what happened was I receive a, a one-hour <laughs> one message on my email, a voice message, and I listened to it, and it was really going into someone's tremendous grief, anger, frustration, confusion, and I listened to this, and then I went and sat, just sat with my Kuan Yin, I just took it all in, and I thought that there is so much more to this, I know, I know just knowing the two people, so much more. So I had to also consider the other person. So I wrote a little message and said, I'm sorry to hear things aren't going so well for the two of you. And Anyway, at some point, the other person got all 
all very, you know, aggressive and righteous and they're wrong and I'm right and none of your business. And, and, and I, it pulled me back into my place. And I thought even sometimes when you offer something which is of immediate position, a position that is with kindness and capacity to really listen, capacity to really be with the both situations, knowing it's just suffering. It's a lot of pain that we put upon each other when we have an angst or we have anger. But I wasn't able, you know, because there was also... Um, there was also, you know, the police had become involved, all these things. So I wasn't able to really hold the two parties. So I continued with hearing the news of one party. And it brought me to this understanding that we can practice meditation many years. We can sit on our cushions. We can believe we have really some attainment. We may even get ordained for a while. But underneath, if you haven't developed a very deep-rooted capacity or compassion, the ignorance and the hatred, and the other, the way we see other and our fight, it grows doesn't take a lot to just pierce that for it all to come bubbling up. So then the big question is, how do we start to cultivate? How do we start to develop that mind that is genuinely caring and kind to ourselves and understanding to ourselves? of ourselves, about ourselves, that we can then open that up to see all sides. Very hard for us in Ukraine to understand Putin's reactions unless you really understand and can see how politically he's been moving in a certain direction for a very long time, just in little ways, you know. We might think it's land grabbing or we might think it's you know, positioning for, for greater power. But people who, who know that side of the world of politics, when you know it, you can understand. You don't have to be so involved with the craziness of a human's, you know. But then on the other side, you see the defending and the sense of hopelessness and the sense of courageousness, forbearance, and all the, you know, wonderful attributes people have when they're really fighting for a cause. But how do you hold the whole of it? How does the mind become so open, so wise, so clear, and so compassionate that it can hold all of it? And it requires cultivation. I think if I hadn't probably had some sort of karmic connection with the Kuan Yin from previous time, previous lives, I would have been possibly in this tradition 
or in another tradition where my focus may have been much more just meditation. But Korea is a very open tradition. It allows you to go and study with different traditions. It encourages you, if you need to do purification practices, do chanting and bowing. If you need to you know, study the Dharma, find a skillful teacher. If you need to meditate every twice a year, there's three-month meditation retreats. Go meditate. So we had this capacity to develop ourselves through many different means. And I used to try and do once a year uh, for maybe not three months, for a couple of months. In our, We have two main seasons, retreat and two freer seasons where we can study other things or do do work. And for at least two months, one or two months, I did... Uh, some sort of community social engagement. You know, so I got a lot of experience. I went and worked in a leper colony for a short time. And I taught children uh, Dhamma for a short time. You know, these, there were many things, helping in, in various, helping people who were sick, monks and nuns who were sick. I sat with a, a lady who was dying for a few months and um, helped her, and then another older monk was dying, so I'd often go and help where I could. So it allowed me to develop parts of myself that were they're not comfortable things. You, know, you have to apply, you have to work hard, you have to give of yourself in ways you're not comfortable in giving of yourself. And so, you know, that... Um, these things I slowly think help to cultivate a sort of a, a spirit, a heart, that when I had a big challenge, you know, when the bushfires came and life threatened many people and many people died and many people were years in their, you know, rebuilding and recultivating some sort of life, I could be very present. I could do something. But I think we can always do something, even though it is another part of the world. Even though it may not be our religion, our group, our friends, our family, we can always do something. But do something that's purposeful, that is also meaningful to me, is quite important. It's not a self, you know, you have to get at the self has to, you have to get out of the way of the self. But at the same time, when you are doing something that is coming from the place of practice, you know, before I communicated with the lady who was having the relationships problem, I, I sat and centered and practiced. And thought, what is useful here? And all that was useful in that situation, really, was to pick up the phone call and listen for another two hours. That's all I could do, was just hold the phone and let that person speak. That was the most beneficial. I may have said a few things, but from the feedback, that was the most beneficial. Sometimes it is doing something simple like that or writing a letter or 
making a small donation. But sometimes it does require a lot of physical work. When you're making a temple, and it was wonderful to visit Newbury and to see how much development, and you, many of you have just been there for the inauguration of the, the beginning of the retreat center, the, not the inauguration of the center, but you know the, um, the settling of the land and the pr blessings and prayers and to have Acham Brahm present. It was wonderful, you know. I was there a few days before, but I was teaching on the Sunday, last Sunday. But you know, this is a place that allows people to come and cultivate, allows people to come and enter deeply into themselves through the meditation. But what you do with it when you come home is the main thing. How does it grow? How does it continue? How does it develop in your interactions, in your communication? And again, not just with the group you're comfortable with, not just with the situation you're comfortable with, because it is the, the situations you are not comfortable with, places that you go that you find very difficult are the places you grow. Korea was very difficult, very hard country. We were very poor. The president had been killed. Food was very limited, you know. I lived on three sorts of kimchi for years, three sorts of pickles, you know, tofu once a week. We didn't have a smorgasbord of food. Go back and there's you know a little table, but it was usually you know three a veggie, some sort of veggie, some sort of pickle, and maybe a little bit of nori or something like this, and some rice and soup. And the soups were often made from the outer cabbage leaves that you let dry, or seaweed that's dried seaweed. They are the predominant basis for a soup. With we made the miso, we made the soy sauce. We made the tofu, we, we pounded the rice to make the sticky rice cakes, big, great big mallets on a wooden, in a wooden bowl. You know, everything we did, we made, grew the vegetables. You know, so the life was not an easy life, but it was incredibly satisfying on a deep level and and the laughter and the joy that would come from us. You could see the life of a monastic is something you give yourself fully to. And so for this Moshan who wanted to be a nun, you know, a great aspiration from a past life to go and live in a temple and develop this, uh, this cultivate this compassion and this wisdom. But there's things that we also need to think about when we are facing a challenge. You know, you really need a strong back. And as uh, one of the Roshis says, a soft front and a strong back. You need a strong spine, which comes out of meditation. You need that centeredness and an open heart, ability 
to face something that's very uncomfortable. During the bushfires, there were many meetings. Sometimes I had three, four meetings a day, and they're often very aggressive, very aggressive. People in a room all angry, you know, they didn't get this, and that happened, they lost everything, they're very angry. And the government's promising things and things aren't coming. And I, I had to sit in these meetings in more a mediating way or meditative way. I had to embrace that, that anger and that, that pain people were feeling. And I did, you know. I mean, it, it was about six years later, seven years later, that I started to feel I was walking backwards. Somebody said, Jigwang, I'm not, not sure you're quite right. <laughs> and then I, you know, stepped away from it for a while. But I know what it's like, you know. If I hadn't had that cultivation in Korea, or that connection with my Kuan Yin, I don't know if I could have faced it. I would have kept wanting to go and meditate or go and find some still space or some quiet place. It was too noisy, it was too, too volatile, too aggressive. But actually, what we don't see is this is how it is all the time. Even though we think we live in a, a beautiful land, a beautiful world, if we're to expose only a, a few of these properties, walls fall down, and a few of these properties, we will see what's behind the doors. We will see, you know, how people are suffering because they don't have work or they've got depression since the, since the COVID. Or people have become very lonely or very isolated or find it very hard to get motivated to get back into work. So we will find that we don't have to go very far to meet somebody with a face that is not very happy. I walk into the village in King Lake and apart from the majority of people looking still a little bit, I don't know where their minds are, but they're never very quite here, you know. <laughs> You've got to sort of look for an eye because they're somewhere else. And we learn through meditation not to be somewhere else, to be here, to be very present. For me, I feel when I'm very present and I look at these, these images, it always puts a smile on my face. When you look at a Buddha, it always puts a smile on your face. Iknat Han talked so much about when you smile, also your heart smiles. Mm. We are trying to develop the mind of wisdom, of empathy, of joy, hopefully some sort of deeper compassionate and altruistic action follows. But if we can remember compassion's not something that just comes. It's something that's already there in our human nature. His Holiness Dalai Lama talks about this all the time. We are innately good. But through our confusion and delusion, we 
think in ways that are not so helpful and cause more suffering, more pain. One of the things that also I think helps um, for people is to take the five lay precepts or take the ten in the Mahayana or the Bodhisattva. When people come, sometimes people come and ask about the Bodhisattva. If they actually take the five precepts and work with one, really understand and work with one, till that is very clear, a lot of the other precepts will also start to purify. And we'll be able to work with them better. So if we're working with the precept of, you know, not taking what's not given, then we're going to be more conscious about what it is we do give, what it is we do take, how we handle things, how we look after things. So other aspects start to, we start to look after what it is we are given. We start to appreciate it more. If we start to work with the precept of, of speech, you know, in, in Mahayana there's so many layers of the speech, um, but if you start to work with not lying, then, you know, you start to see where it is you are actually coveting, slightly deceiving yourself or deceiving others. And it's not that you instantly stop, but you start to see it and you start to recognize how it causes Seeing is the point. I in the hand, the wisdom I, is the point. It is the focus, the attention, the capacity to be with, observe and penetrate with that wisdom to see what really is there and what really matters. Rather than we get involved in one side or the other of a war, we can have tremendous, it's easier to have tremendous compassion for the for one side. But then you see these young boys, these young Russian boys, who didn't even know they're going to war. Their parents didn't even know they're going to war. And then you start to feel oh my goodness, compassion for all their potential that was cut off without even knowing. And then if you go deeper and deeper and very deep, you can actually even have compassion for Putin himself or any other perpetrator, dictator, murderer. Because somewhere in their karmic history something's happened for them that's cultivated those behaviors to become like that. As the Buddha points out with Angulimala's story. Or the Milarepa story. So many great monks talk about who they were and what they were doing 
But the wonderful thing is compassion shines on it all. It doesn't discriminate. It shines on it all like the sun. You can have compassion for the pain caused in people who live right here, who are right in this room, if we can see into what the causes are. Rather than judge the external action. Of course, we can judge and we can protect and we can, we do, you know, we do it all the time. But we actually, through a penetrating mind, see a lot more. When we go to monasteries, we come here to the BSV. come to the Son Centre. So many people come. I had um, <laughs> Mohini and Liv and Cora come to visit recently and they found it very peaceful. Very peaceful. Cora was sitting just looking at the pond. You know, people, um, we were all just sitting around the pond and Panmini was just sitting there looking at it. It was just that pose. I see it all the time. People just come in when they can sit quietly, comfortably in nature. There is this instant rapport, instant reflection. Yesterday I was out in the garden and these... I don't usually have ravens come, but I've been hearing them occasionally. But a family of ravens came. It's like my place is attracting different birds. And... uh, and they were doing their growl, like this cry, but they were doing it in a song. And they were all, all crying over each other. It was beautiful, beautiful sound. And then I, I went into the house, and there's all the little black crows, the little chuffs. And they've decided, this is pretty nice, and you know they get a little bit of a feed, and they're in the back, and they're all, they make a terrible noise. When they, when they make a noise, they're fearful, of something, they put out this like a real loud, flat noise. That's why they're called chuffs. But they were all sitting up on the fence. They'd obviously been pecking around and had little feet. And they were sitting on the fence, really close and pruning each other. You know, it's just I was going to take a few fo- show a few photos of that, but I forgot. So I was thinking, yes, it is. When a place is peaceful, the creatures come. Animals feel safe. You know? And um, more so people, more so humans. So this is also something important is to cultivate our hearts in an environment. You, know, you may not have an image of Kuan Yin, but you have an image that brings joy and kindness and love into your heart. Then that is something also cultivated. As a child, you know, I'd learnt, as I said, I'd learnt to create that image of the beautiful sea palace, <laughs> the, the sea, the sea, all the sea, various fish. I made them up in my mind. I don't know where I, maybe I saw them on something, I don't know. But they got, you know, like these fantasy movies you have kids watch now. It was like this, you know, it developed in my mind where everything develops. 
but it always had a point. My point was to get to that place that was luminous, clear, bright, and to gain a little bit of truth, a little bit of wisdom. And I would come back feeling very joyous. So if a two-year-old can create that, I'm sure you all can. So maybe if you have a couple of questions, I might leave it there. There's always endless things to talk about this subject, and I talk about it too often. I'm sorry if it's... <laughs> It's something that, uh, yes. Feel free to come up to the microphone for a question. You can ask a question or say something, tell a story about your own your own deep, compassionate <laughs> experience. <laughs> I'm sure Rajani has many. But she's, <laughs> Rajani has, you know, yeah, she studied with Ayakema for a long time, and then she's helped so many women with their ordination and becoming a nun and, and has seen so much, you know. Yes, come, come and share a little bit of what you've you've done, because we all know you've done a lot of work. That is, uh... yes. Thank you. First, happy birthday for everybody ah, to know that it's your you. birthday. It's beautiful. <laughs> May you live be healthy and live long to serve in Dharma. I because you request I it's all. I'm happy when I think of the uh, results of my efforts for helping the nuns. Yes. Uh, the, cha the changes within the last two decades, uh, how it has improved the conditions of the Buddhist nuns. Yes. Uh, when I think of it, I can't believe the how now they are so from what they were before. So they are very grateful because they are having all the facilities and they live in comfort, they are serving the community mm -hmm. and they are taking the Dhamma to the families. That is what I really wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really through compassion for the nuns I started and didn't have any intention of doing any big things. Mm -hmm. But it was the Dhamma that one Helped after the others, yeah. it just followed, yes. It was my pure intention to take the. Uh, it was at the inspired by Ayakema, who really mentioned Ranjani, you help the nuns, and that is how I look at the nuns. Started uh, trying to help them, to take them out of their, to empower and educate them and make them uh, useful community of women in the society. So they became actually change agents in society with training in social development work and now 
Even now, my, the nun at the Sakadita Center yesterday, so now she's invited to the video in the YouTube. I can't believe mm. she's giving the talks. They are inviting the, to the now all TV channels, first yeah. time. Yes, Bikuni is giving talks. Last night also before I went to, actually I left the phone also and came because I was in the 11.30, I was, she messaged me all the talks when she finished. Then I look at that, listen to her, and so wonderful mm. how beautifully she related the, giving the Dhamma talks about the Indriya Sangvara, the uh, Sila. So that gives me a lot of uh, yeah. happiness and satisfaction. And so it is really through compassion I started, and that is yeah. how it. And uh, it's grown. Yeah, thank you, Rajani. Thank you, sir. Rajani has done an enormous amount for. Bikuni over many years, and of course, you know that not all of it has been easy. So, you know, facing. Um, Can I say something? Yes, please. Just in um, terms of the BSV as a group, uh, it's largely because we started looking after the nuns yes. in 2007 that we ma managed to open a monastery yes, at Newbury right. because Arjun Brahm um, absolutely insisted that it had to be for nuns and monks. Mm. And um, we have in the office, I think, Yasmin, this marvellous thing that we're going to have to put on the... Well, we're not going to have to. We've constructed to go on the wall mm. to remind us all of um, how we support it Sangamita Rama to start That's with, right, yeah. from very small beginnings, mm. a house in Bentley, yes. and how that's grown. Mm. And here in 2022, it's an absolutely amazing how the circumstances at Newbury have continued, mm. have, are continuing. Yeah. So that's all. But oh, thank um, you. Yeah, we, we'll talk about that another time. Think, maybe, no, maybe, no, it's great. Maybe when yeah. Chi Kwang's here. And I, Rebecca, we'll, we should have a little sort of recognition. Re of yes, re reflection. Reflection as yes. we put it on the wall somewhere. Yes. Is that right, Yasmin? I think so. Because <laughs> I remember with um, Sangamita Rama, you know, I was, I was around at that time and helping the first nun when she came um, and part of the discussions and then, you know, the the thoughts of how it could develop. But, you know, it's developed through the many hands, many, many. the many hands of and, and many eyes. <laughs> You're all like a hand and an eye that has, you know, offered your, your wisdom and your compassion, your kindness for this to grow. And it continues to grow because uh, something that Rajani pointed out is the, the cultivation in the practice of a monastic, the cultivation, the not just the meditation, but you know what you have to do every day in serving in community and and looking after the visitors and listening to stories like I mentioned. You know, these are things that is just naturally part of being a monastic, and and to house because out of appreciation, then the lay people see this is a very valued. Um, uh, opportunity to grow the Dhamma and so then they have contributed to the making of of Newbury and of Dhammasara and of 
serpentine, you know, it <laughs> goes on. <laughs> and Sandy Forest Monastery. Mm. Extraordinary. Yes, you want to say something? Thank you for having me. It's my first time here. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, And I was wondering if you have any type of mentoring program capacity for people who are new and wanting to learn more. Yes, well, I'm a visitor. <laughs> I come I come from time to time, but there are and there is a resident monk here. Um I mean, I'm available. Uh, I can always give you my phone number. But if you would like to um, meet with a monk, normally he would be here uh, or one of the other monks from Newbury or occasionally I or Pekka. They come every, they teach every week. So there is a program. So it may be good to talk with... Um, yes. But thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Yeah, Yeah, so, well, thank you everybody for coming. And um, sorry we can't offer dana today, but (laughs) as in a lunch. But please, um, yes, if you can take one or two things from today's talk, then reflect on that. That's all you need to do is to reflect on one or two things and see how it, where it takes you. Thank you.